0: Listen up, listeners, Fred Dreyer here with VeloNews Podcast, and we here at VeloNews have a great holiday deal for you on subscriptions to the print issue of VeloNews. That's right. An annual subscription, nine issues a year, uh, plus the Tour de France guide. And right now, if you sign up for a 2020 subscription to VeloNews magazine, you get a free book of your choice from VeloPress. That's right. We have Lots and lots of great cycling titles, such as Feed Zone Table from Dr. Alan Lim, Zinn and the Art of Mountain Bike Maintenance from Leonard Zinn, The Handy Cyclist's Training Diary from Joe Friel, plus great books on gravel cycling, uh, books that take you inside the domestic U.S. Peloton, My World by Peter Sagan, lots of different great cycling books, and you can get one free if you sign up for a 2020 Print subscription to Velo News Magazine. Head on over to VeloPress.com for more information or to sign up. Okay, let's get on with the show. Uh, Welcome back to the Velo News Podcast. Fred Dreyer here coming to you from a sunny Tuesday at the world headquarters. In Boulder, Colorado, the last time we recorded this, it snowed literally over two feet uh, during the recording. Nothing like that is going to happen today. Uh, Betsy and I, we we looked out of the recording studio afterwards, and there was mountains of snow uh, all over the place. Made it home all right, but had definitely a snowy uh, break. Um, listeners, I hope you had a great uh, Thanksgiving holiday. Uh, we have lots to give thanks for here at the Vell News offices for Pro Cycling, for Mo- Matthew Vanderpoel, for Annemiek Van Vluten, and for Andrew Hood, who is joining us today from the Man Cave in Spain. Andy, w- what what goes on in Spanish Thanksgiving? Is there a jamon or um, some like salty fish that you all uh, just eat a lot of and then have a siesta? What goes on with Spanish Thanksgiving? <laughs> yeah, no
1: salty fish, nor jamón. Well, it's just a normal day of the week here in Spain. It's kind of funny. I was thinking about that the other day because a lot of the American traditions and, and customs are really going worldwide, right? You got the Black Friday. That's a worldwide phenomenon. You got Santa Claus. That was never really a big thing in Spain. Um, some of the other holidays that are kind of typical American. But Thanksgiving is one of those uh, fiestas that just have not – Kind of caught on with the rest of the world. You don't see the French eating turkey. Uh, you know the French like to eat like the turkey leg. You know the turkey brains maybe, turkey livers, but they're not they're not eating a turkey. And the Spanish. I think if if Turkey, you know, Thanksgiving involved hamon, it would be a much bigger deal in Spain. But so far,
0: turkey turkeys are safe in Spain. Oh, come on, Eddie! You're an expat. You are uh, you are our export to Spain. I figured you'd be roping your wife and all her family into like cracking open the cranberry sauce and the turkey and uh, eating until you can't move anymore. You have you have not delivered them the joy of Thanksgiving yet. Yeah, maybe I'll do that next
1: year. I you know, to be honest, the thought has not even crossed my mind. <laughs> but maybe next year. You know, I mean, I think last Thursday we dug into some ham and some salty fish, and it was
0: just—it was all right. I still like the idea of the French Thanksgiving, where it'd be like snail brain squashed up, put in the liver of a cat, buried in the backyard, <laughs> doused in wine. Which of so the
1: mushrooms come?
0: <laughs> Gotta love the French cuisine. Gotta love the French cuisine. We have plenty of time to make fun of French cuisine. Um, Today we have a great episode of the podcast for you. It is the end of the year and the annual right in cycling media of handing out awards to the top performers of the year. We here at Velonews have done an awards issue for 32 years and our 32nd annual Velonews Awards issue just hit newsstands has a great picture on the cover of Chloe Dygert motoring to her world championship win in the individual time trial. So, Andrew Hood, for today's Uh, episode of the podcast we're gonna dig into these awards both for the year we also had some big stories of the decade that we wrote about Um, we're gonna dig into these because as always um, you know there's some years in which the awards are very obvious and some years in which there's arguing and debating that has to go on back and forth and for some of these awards this year there was definitely some debate some arguments some uh, opinions that were thrown around, and we're going to get to those um, a little bit later. Actually, we're going to start off with one that had some, I think, some some good-spirited debate around it, and that was the best day of racing. So every year we look at the calendar and we look at the races that um, were so fun to watch and held our – um, attention span, even though they've been just completely destroyed by social media. Our attention spans, that is. And we we come up with our best day of racing. And this year, for our uh, awards, we had in the, in the running for best day of racing, we had Annemiek Van Vluten winning the Road World Championships. We had Milan San Remo, which saw a thrilling finish with Julian Alaphilippe. Perry Roubaix, that awesome Roubaix. You and I were there in the Roubaix velodrome as we watched Philippe Gilbert win. Um, women's Tour of Flanders, which saw a great sprint uh, between Annemiek van Vluten and Marta Bastianelli. Um, we said La Course by La Tour de France, which was a thrilling race that saw uh, Mariana Voss win. And finally, we had the Amstel Gold Race, which, you know, in, in previous years, I feel like these Ardennes races have lost a little bit of the luster. But this year, Amstel, with the thrilling finish by Matthew van der Poel, um, brought, some, brought some energy, some elan, some vigor back to that race. Um, Andy, what, which of these races, just top of mind, stand out to you when you look at this race? Which were the, some, of the, some of the races that you thought were the most exciting?
1: Yeah, that's a pretty good list. I thought uh, the Amstel goal finale, of course, really kind of just put the exclamation mark on Vanderpool's really amazing spring run. I mean, he kind of came in, to the spring, you know, his first real kind of run at the World Tour. And for him to win the way he did after what he had already done throughout the spring was absolutely spectacular. And just in the way he did it, just kind of coming really out of nowhere in that last three Ks when the race looked like it was already won, up those guys off the front. And for him just to pour everything out there, really just kind of, I thought, captured who he is and the style of racing and what he represents for the future of cycling. And then looking down this list, I mean, it's a good list. Uh, you know, I thought the Joubert victory at Roubaix was pretty spectacular. I mean, Joubert was one of those kind of uh, charismatic, old school, kind of, you know, he's kind of a rock star feel about Joubert, especially when he gets back in, in Belgium. And he really loves those one day races. And, you know, he's been trying to win all these monuments. And uh, that was number four. So he's working his way through that list. The only one he's missing so far is Milan San Remo. It might be a hard one for him to win, simply because that the Poggio, you know, it's just not ideal for him. Even though I think he's been on the podium twice at San Remo in his career, but I thought the Gilbert win was spectacular, just in a way that he rode everyone off his wheel. I mean, Niels Pollet was there with him in the velodrome, but how he kind of was able to drop uh, Saigon in that key moment and really just capped the end of the Northern Classics. I mean, for me, that whole block of uh, the Classics, man, is, is the best of the whole year.
0: Rewatching the Gilbert win at um, Roubaix, I, I, I had forgotten how early he went out on the attack. I mean, it was like 73K is when he broke out of the peloton and went out there, and he'd have these different groups with him, and he was part of a bigger group, and it got whittled down, and then the leaders came up and met Sagan. You know, they came up and caught him, and he was still able to win out of it. Uh, you know, when you're on the on the ground at these races sometimes the blow by blow and some of the more thrilling parts of the race you forget because you know you're like you know I, you're trying to get to the finish line or like me I was still lamenting the loss of my expensive bicycle that had been stolen but <laughs> yeah but rewatching, permanently. Yeah, permanently, but bar, re-watching that uh, Gilles Berwin, um, I, I had forgotten just what a tactical masterclass that was. And similarly, La Course by Latour, you know, it's not always the most thrilling race, but this year was such a tactical masterclass by uh, by Mariana Voss in that she had Amanda Spratt well off the front coming into this finale. And it looks like Spratt's going to be able to hold it going up this final climb. Spratt's a very good climber. But as she has done time and time again, Voss just... She has this preternatural ability to know exactly when to accelerate and catch a spread just before the line and sprints away for the win. That was another thrilling um, finish. So when we tallied up our votes, um, there was one clear winner for this one. And it was the race you talked about at the beginning. It was Amstel Gold Race. So, Amstel, congratulations. You are our best day of racing for 2019. And like you said, Andy, what a thrilling day of racing. I think something that always weighs on this award is someone who grabs victory from the clutches of defeat. And I just looking back at that Vanderpool win, I haven't seen a grabbing victory from the clutches of defeat style win like that in quite some time. I mean, he's just, he's completely out of the race with 10K to go, you know, and with 5K to go, he's starting, sort of starting to come back. But all logic says that it's going to be Ala Philippe and Jakob Fuglsang sprinting it out. They have this huge advantage. And then just out of nowhere, closes the door. I mean, I I fell out of my chair.
1: Yeah, that's uh, Vanderpool. That's why we, I love that guy. I, I voted for him uh, for Writer of the Year award. The uh, Velo d'Or, our, our French competitor, just released their uh, rider of the Year award this past week. And of course, no surprise there. They gave it to Julian Alaphilippe. Uh, we'll talk about that in a minute here on Velo News. But uh, I just thought uh, Vanderpool was spectacular all season long. And then, of course, what he's been doing, uh, you know, cross discipline. I think he's won, uh, what was the stat? Uh, his 34th cyclocross race in a row yeah. in his 30s i'm not sure the exact number uh and then uh, what he did on, on, on mountain biking uh, his ability just to you know kind of slide in and out of these different disciplines to me he's he's the, you know really the most exciting rider to emerge but you know you can't take away from what remco evanpool did at the classic ascent sebastian that deserves an honorable mention for best uh Ooh. one day race what he did what he did this year and you know, remco you know, went off the front very far away from the uh, the leaders as well. Uh, Scroogens was there, couldn't stay with him, and Remco, you know, way defied all the expectations and was able to fend off the top uh, Tour de France riders, and he won that race. Uh, Remco, get Bernal, all these young guys coming up. It's 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 an exciting uh, time in cycling, and I think, like you
0: said, the way Vanderpool won that MSO gold, man, it's just like, come on. Chapeau. Chapeau. Okay, on to the next award. Best team of the year. This, of course for the uh, cycling team out there that we thought was best in the running, we have Team Ineos and their Tour de France Championship. We have Team Takuna Quickstep, which again topped the leaderboard with most World Tour wins, most UCI wins with, I think it was in the 60s or something like that. Um, Bulls-Dolmans won the Women's World Tour overall, not as dominant as we have seen in years past. Uh, In 2016, 2017, Bulls-Dolmans, I mean, just completely dominated the Women's World Tour this year, they won the points totals, but eh, their level of domination wasn't quite what it had been. And last but not least, we had Yumbo Visma. And look, Yumbo Visma didn't have the most wins this year, but they had a Grand Tour win. They were on the podium at the Tour, and they found ways to be competitive and to win in lots of different races, which I thought made them stand out. Um would you like to weigh in on this best team of the year hoodie before we divulge the winner?
1: yeah it's it's a it's a good list there. I mean Enos uh, w- wins it's uh, another another tour de France. I mean you know they've been dominating the tour now with uh, they've won three in a row now with three different leaders they've won uh, you know going back to to Wiggins win. so you know the, the whoever can beat Enios at the tour, that's going to be the, the real mark of, of the next great dynasty, perhaps. But you look at these teams across, a quick step again. To me, I'm always impressed by that quick step. There's such a team player uh, atmosphere on that team. They get. It's not just one or two riders that win a lot. The wins are spread out across the entire team, and they really sp- kind of split out the victories among everyone. Even during the classics, they'll do this swarm offense. They'll put three or four guys into leadership roles, into these one days And that's how they're positioning themselves To get into the, the, the right wheel to, to win these races And then on the women's side, yeah They weren't quite as dominant as they have been But uh, always right there with the lineup they have They are kind of the super team of, of the women's peloton
0: I was impressed with, uh, taking a of quick step, you know, at the Tour California, they unleashed their young guys. You know, usually these guys are these domestiques and Remy Cavagna and Kasper Oskarin, uh, the managers were just like, do whatever you can. Breakaways, try to win stages, sure. And they dominated, they crushed guys. In fact, Oskarine almost won the overall and he's this like big burly uh, classics dude. We saw Cavagna win a stage of the Welt. Uh, um, you're right. I mean, it's a democratic team in that it seems like at some point everyone's going to get a chance for victory. All that being said... Uh, we voted for Yumbo Visma. Yumbo Visma was our team of the year. And I think, again, it's not necessarily the volume of wins, but what they were able to do across multiple disciplines, that they were winning sprints, they were winning big one days, being competitive at the classics with Wout van Aert, winning sprints with Dylan Groenewegen. and then also challenging for Grand Tour wins and winning a Grand Tour with Primoz Roglic and then being on the podium with Kroeswig. Oftentimes we just don't see big teams at that level being able to do it all. And these guys really seem to be the Swiss army knife in 2019.
1: Yeah, I totally agree with you on that one, Fred. Swiss Army knife, I like it. Too bad they're not a Swiss team. You could yeah. have be a perfect sponsor. <laughs> be a perfect sponsor. Um, but you're right. you Grand Wagon, you know, world class sprinter. You got the the classics uh, with Wout, and then uh, what they what they were able to do across the uh, Grand Tours, you know, really put pressure on Enios. But at the same time, you know, they podiumed at the Giro and the Tour and won the Welt uh, with Primo's road who is really emerging as I think the biggest Grand Tour rider. Of the new generation, along with Egan Bernal, of course, those are the two riders I think to watch going into uh, the next decade. But you're right. I mean, it's not most teams are kind of uh, specializing. You know, Quick Step, they do well in the sprints, they do well in the in the one days. Grand Tours, not so great. In fact, I don't think Quick Step has won a Grand Tour ever, or maybe in a long time. Let's put it that way. <laughs> I can't think of. You know, I don't think they've ever won a Grand Tour. Um, whereas Ineos, Grand Tour machine but you know they're not uh, you know putting effort into the sprints or you know they've had some lackluster results I mean you know they've been consistent and competitive in the monuments but that's not their forte their their forte is grand tour racing and specifically the tour de france so jumbo visma
0: swiss army knife i love it plus something you know we keep Come at, bring it up again and again with them on the site is homegrown talent, getting young guys, bringing them along, Primoz Roglic, discovering him, been uh, he's been with the team for a long time, you know, finding a way to develop to identify and develop talent from within, as opposed to, you know, the quick step model can can be the buy superstars or buy, you know, distressed assets and try and, um, you know, plug them into the system. Whereas Yumbo Visma is all about development, which I think is really cool.
1: Yeah. I think the team, excuse me, the team has even a brighter future going forward. They have new sponsors coming on. Of course, Tom Dumoulin, the, one, of the, probably the, one of the biggest moves in terms of rider transfers for 2020, he's going to give them a whole new dimension going into the Grand Tour racing season next year. Um, we're coming out of that camp, You know, the, it sounds like the consensus is building around Dumoulin going to the Giro and Roglic going to the Tour. So, that's going to give them real two legitimate options to win both of those races.
0: OK. I'm going to blow through a couple of these awards uh, for North American and off-road racers. So, for the best Day of Racing in North America... We gave it to Dirty Kanza. Um, there wasn't really any competition there. Dirty Kanza was such a thrilling race with Colin Strickland winning uh, the men's race. Amity Rockwell coming from behind to win with um, mountain bike woman, Kate Courtney. How could we not give it to Kate Courtney? She came from behind to win the World Cup overall uh, for mountain bike man. Uh, Nino Schurter won again. He was the World Cup and world champion, um, even though Matthew Vanderpool gave him a run for his money, beat him at three World Cups. Which is, we're going to get to that later. Uh, for cyclocross, who, who else? Vanderpoel won the world championships. Sonicant won the world championships, third time in a row. Um, in North America, for the Men's Racer of the Year, we had James Piccoli of Elevate KHS, Justin Williams of the Legion of Los Angeles, um, Stephen Bassett, who was a close second at the U.S. Pro championships, um, riding for this small wildlife generation team, and then Colin Strickland, who won Dirty Kansas. We gave it to James Pickley. Um, he was the man this year in North American stage racing, and he punched his ticket to the world tour. And that doesn't happen every single year in North American uh, domestic racing. So to see him, you know, he was top U.S. guy at... The tour of Utah, second place, and punched his ticket to ride with uh, Israel Cycling Academy. Um, chapeau to him! For the North American woman, there was no contest. It was Chloe Digert. She won all the big stage races. Won the the, the Colorado Classic, all four stages, um, in dominating fashion. No one was no one was really close on that one. Um, chapeau to her. Um, oh yeah, superstar in the making, and she was in the running too. So for our international. Female cyclists of the year um, the, in the running was Chloe Digert, Lorena Weebs, Mariana Voss, and Amique Van Vluten. So Van Vluten wins the World Championships with like a 100K breakaway. That's insane. Um, Dygert speeds to the World Championship win in the individual time trial and is now tearing it up on the track. Lorena Weebs, age 22. Second year as a pro, and she won the UCI overall. She won a ton of sprints, showed herself to be proud, you know the, the next big versatile Dutch sprinter. What's up with the Netherlands? They seem to grow them on trees everywhere. Um uh, but hoodie. It's all that cheese. Yeah, it's all that cheese. We gave the award to Marianne Voss. Uh, Marianne Voss mm-hmm. won a ton of big races in 2019, including La Course, Four Stages of the Giro. Um, and we gave it to her because, you know, she has been on this multi-year quest to get back to her old level. And she saw, it showed glimmers of it last year, 2018, won a, won a number of races. But this year, uh, she was basically unbeatable in some of these races. Something that comes back to me is I think it was stage two of the tour of Norway. Maybe it was stage five where she, you know, she doesn't wait for the sprint. She breaks away and like the, the peloton is within sight of her for like the last like 5K and she still manages to hold them off. Um, just really showed herself to be like it, it, just the smartest racer in the bunch. So chapeau to you, Mariana Voss.
1: Yeah, it was fun watching her race this year for that exact reason. And, you know, She played – she had the legs. Her legs were back. Her form was back to what she used to be able to – put out before but it's i think you know she's just racing smarter and more tactical than she ever has and some of those wins that this year were just sublime in terms of how she played them out like that
0: okay on to the big one international cyclist of the year uh we had Lorna weebs mariana Voss, enemy van vluten primos Roglic, julian alaphilippe and matthew van der poel so we've spoken about weebs we've spoken about Voss and van vluten uh, let's dig into Primoz Roglic and Julian Alaphilippe. Um, let's let's talk about Roglic first. You have just written a big story on Roglic for the upcoming print issue of Velo News. Uh, Hoodie, what's the significance of the 2019 season for Primo's Roglic? It marks
1: his arrival and confirmation as a legitimate Grand Tour rider. Um, it's, it's incredible to recall that he won his first Grand Tour in his fifth start. That's insane. So, even though he, that's insane. So, you know, Egon Bernal, he he, uh, he did it in his only his uh, second tour. So, just chapeau to, uh, hats off to Mr. Bernal, who was ob- obviously uh, uh, equally as incredible. But, you know, just the fact that he was crossover. Hey, did you know that he used to be a ski jumper? Holy crap. Did you know that? Wow. Crossover. You know yeah. Crossover athlete, but for him to be able to kind of come into the sport very late, he didn't, didn't even start really racing his bike until he's 21, 22 years old, and just how fast he's risen in th- into the ranks, just tells. There's a lot more to that story. Uh, we kind of dig into a little bit in the next print issue, dig into a little bit more. You know, really what you know what was that road that, that Roglic took to to you know, grow his skills and his racing acumen to get to where he won the Weltasponia this year. Because it wasn't just like, you know, suddenly he's there. This is an exceptional athlete. This has this massive motor, uh, coupled with, uh, you know, pretty ambitious uh, goals, not only for him and his team. So all these elements kind of came together, and it really, you know, came up to, you know, this year he came in, he won all the stage races that he started this year, besides the Giro Italia and he finished third in that one. So. It was a pretty, uh, it was a pretty hard debate, really, for the best international cyclist. You know, we didn't didn't even have Bernal on this list, did we?
0: No, and yeah, so you know, look at these uh, eye popping statistics for Roglic. The first three races of the year: UAE Tour, which I was at, Tirreno Adriatico, and Roman D wins the first three stage races of the year. Um, Roman D one, two. I mean, multiple stage wins. Um, and also riding with insane confidence, um, the ability to shut down moves like we saw at the UAE Tour, where you know he ends up winning the final stage, sprinting past all the other GC guys, or at Tirreno making some of these last-ditch uh, moves to to win the stages. So I, I think. There was a bit of an argument. I remember going into the Giro about like, what if he's just a one-week racer? What if he's just a Richie Port? You know, he's going to be great for a week and then it's going to fall off after three weeks. And the Giro, I don't know if it necessarily confirmed that. Obviously, he didn't win the Giro. So that can sort of be used as a knock against him. I mean, he was on the podium. But I think there's legitimate reasons why he didn't win the Giro that perhaps are out of his control. The first of which is that Yumbo Visma sent a strong team to the to the Giro, but not not the strongest team, right? I mean he had Lawrence DeVries, he had Sep, but it wasn't like the battle-hardened, you know, top troops of Yumbo Visma.
1: Well at the Giro, you have to remember that Robert Hasick was supposed to go. He crashed, so Sepp Cush went, and he was supposed to go to the tour of California. So Sepp's uh, preparation for the tour for the giro, excuse me, was not uh you nearly know, you know, wasn't on he wasn't on track to race the Giro he was on track to race the tour of California. And then Lawrence de uh right. crashed he crashed out in the first uh, I think four or five days, got sick and went home. So Primoz uh, Primos had a little bit of a depleted team at this Giro compared to what they had around them at at the Welta. You know, they brought all their hitters to the Welta and all the guys that were supposed to race the Welta hitting their form during that race, so that was one factor. And then uh, you know, Primus got sick; he kind of had a crash. Um, you know, and I think you know, the Giro is kind of a different kind of. Uh, Beast of a race, you know. Even you know, it's more the the Welt is more explosive, but not quite as many long, long climbs. And I think that uh, you know he paid for that in that final week of this Giro. But for him to you know he was still was able to finish finish it off with the, with the uh, podium. Uh, at third at the Giro, but then for him to come back and win the way he did the Welta, you know, talking to the guys of that race, they're all just like, oh yeah, he was he was the strongest guy this race without a, quite, without a doubt.
0: Yeah, and I mean, just showing it from the beginning, winning that first time trial, some of those mountain stages, just being right there. And I think something that I saw I, I saw from him at the Welta that perhaps was born from the Giro was being um, being tactically very smart and not wanting to let any danger riders get up the road. I mean, on the final stage, he let Pogachar get up the road and, you know, force the other riders to chase, but I think he had enough of a padding at that point. But I thought about that through the lens of the Giro because, look, the Giro was won by Richard Carapaz with a brilliant tactical move that played off of Roglic and Nibali watching each other. You know, I mean, Carapaz just you know he benefited i mean he's very strong but he benefited from these guys looking at each other and saying you're you're the guy to win the giro not this Carapaz guy and i think that that bore out then in the Welta when um roglic just he wouldn't let anybody go you know he suffocated that race at least he tried to yeah i agree with you 100% i mean, i
1: think that uh the team uh they were trying to be a little bit careful at the giro because of what we just talked about his team was a little bit depleted oh. but yeah he and Nibali were playing some mind games Nibali was going crazy because he was trying to tell if it, uh, Primo is like hey mate you know you're the guy in the in the pink jersey you have to take control of the situation and Carapaz and started exploited that perfectly won the race um, but you have to remember too uh, you know last year's tour Roglic nearly finished on the podium won a stage he finished fourth overall so his progression into a Grand Tour rider has been uh, you know impressive in every measure. And I think this really what happened at the welder, he's just all those elements come together. He's now confident. He's got the team behind him. He, he knows how to to manage a race now, knows how to manage a squad to work for him. And man, I think he's first in line to
0: try to take it to team Ineos Eos next year. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you. All right. Let's get on to uh, Julian Alaphilippe, the other danger man we haven't talked about yet. Um, who's in the running for cyclist of the year. When I think about Alaphilippe, um, another, you know, like Roglic, he was very consistent this year, but he had a really explosive early season. Um, if you look at the first few races he was in, he's winning stages in all of them: Vuelta San Juan, Colombia 2.1, win Strata Bianca, just a thrilling finish of that to win Strada Bianca. Winning uh, two stages of Tirreno, then Milano San Remo, stage of the Basque Country, taking it into the Classics, winning Flesh Wallone uh, stage of Dauphiné. And then he has this insane run at the Tour de France. So, you know, it's, he, he had a very front loaded season in that, okay, he really wasn't winning too much after the tour, but God, what a run he went on up to that point. Um, I mean, when you think of the significance of this season through the lens of his wider career, where do you put this season for him?
1: Yeah. Massive breakthrough, especially with, in light of what he did, uh, at the Tour de France, because you know we always we already saw hints of him being a great one-day rider. He's already won some of these big races. We've already seen him being a one-week uh, uh, stage race contender. He's won some big races as well. But Before he did it at the Tour, just to energize an entire nation, get a French rider in the yellow jersey—not just for a couple of days, not just you know based on a breakaway or taking it in a sprint. You know, he had it the scruff of the neck, and he carried it all the way into the third week, it was only really in those 2,000-plus-meter climbs where Bernal's uh, natural ability at the high altitude really knocked uh, knocked Philippe off the horse, because otherwise, you know, he might have won this tour, uh, and he went in really... Not as a, as a, you know, no one was really considering him as a favorite. There's a few people out there that kind of said, "Hey, you know, watch out for Al Philippe. He's got some good form." But no one expected him to ride as deep as he did, as well as he did, especially into that third week. And uh, you know, it was a breakthrough moment for him. But he's already saying, despite the tr- a tremendous tour that he had,
0: you know, next year it's all about the Olympics. It's all about the one days. It's something that stands out to me about his tour. And I, again, I had forgotten it when, you know, you're that deep in with the race, you sometimes forgot the, forget these elements. So he wins stage three to Eparnay and takes a hold of the race. And we're all thinking at that point, okay, well, he's going to lose the yellow jersey at some point. And he does. He loses it a few stages later, uh, at stage six to La Planche de Belfi, remember? And I think at that point, everyone thinks, okay, well, you know, he lost the yellow. So he's going to focus on stage wins or whatever. No. He came right back and took yellow again, uh, two days later. And that was when it was like, Oh, what's this all about? Like the guy, you know, who, I, you know, I think a lot of us think of as uh, a stage winner, maybe a polka dot jersey guy is now coming back and and taking the yellow jersey back and wanting to see how long he can go with it. And then the, then the big one, the eye-popping one to me was stage 13, the individual time trial, where he beats Garrett Thomas and all the time trial greats. Well, almost all the time trial greats. Rowan Dennis wasn't there. Oops. Um, <laughs> and he beats them to win the stage. And that's the moment where it's like, wait, 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 wait. What the heck? What's going on? <laughs> this guy's winning Tour de France time trials now. I mean, that, that blew my mind.
1: Yeah, that was that was really when it, the, the script just completely changed for Alain Philippe and for him to, to win that time trial, being no one no one expect him to win it, let alone uh, you know obviously defend the jersey that day. And then you know then the story continued. Okay, he's going to go into the Pyrenees. Oh, he'll crack in the high mountains. No, but he defended, came out of the Pyrenees into the Massachusetts trial, had the yellow jersey. France was just going nuts. You know they had Pinot was right there as well, ready to kind of step in if and when Alain Philippe kind of faltered. And then of course. What happens in France? What almost always happens in France in the Tour de France, there was a lot of uh, ugh, know, Well, no, some bad luck. Let's just call it some bad luck. Bad luck. Alaphilippe. Gra- gravity came back to uh, introduce itself to Mr. Alaphilippe and Pinot. You know, just had kind of a weird moment there. I mean, Pinot was poised, at least to be on the podium at that tour. He was very, very strong, and I think he probably could have, you know. Played a huge factor in those final stages. Uh, then he had that weird leg injury, and it just had to pull out into tears. So the you know all these French ambitions and hopes just kind of all collapsed there pretty quickly.
0: So the cyclist of the year award is interesting in that some years it's so obvious. Some years it's oh it's the Tour de France winner or oh it's you know Peter Sagan he uh, won a monument and the green jersey and this that and the other. And I you know I can't remember the last time we had a cyclist of the year. Debate that was as close as this one because you had basically, I think you had four riders that you could make just a really good case for in Mariana Voss, Primos Roglic, Julian Alaphilippe, and Matthew Vanderpool. I think any one of those riders could have won and it would be fine and you could defend your chance or you could defend your choice. Um, we chose Vanderpoel. <laughs> <laughs> you know, having said all that great stuff about um, Julian Alaphilippe. And about Primoz Roglic and about Mariana Voss, we went with Vanderpool. Um, and I think one of the reasons why it was so difficult to make that decision is that everyone had these great accomplishments and then like one knock against them. So with Roglic, it's the Giro, you know, okay, he, he didn't get made to look silly at the Giro, but he definitely, he didn't, he looked pretty, he looked weak at the end of that race. Compared to, you know, uh, Nibali and Carapaz. Um, with Philippe, he was very strong. And then after the tour, he didn't really do much. Uh, didn't do much at the Quebec races, do- Deutschland tour. I mean, he was tired. He was, his season was so front loaded. And then also, he had the uh, Amstel cold race, where he just completely got dusted by Vanderpoel. Uh, with Voss, it was world championships. You know, I, it, I think if she wins worlds on a course that suits her, that puts her over the top. But for me, why I chose Vanderpool was just the fact that it's three disciplines, three disciplines of dominance. So Vanderpool starts the year off winning the cyclocross world championships and a cyclocross world cup after a season of dominating cyclocross. Then he gets into road and there's all this anticipation. Oh, my God. What's he going to be able to do? and not only is he good he's he's fantastic he wins the world tour race at Dwarsdorf and he's right in the mix in Gent-Wevelgem right in the mix at Tour of Flanders and then boom pulls the big victory at Amstel Gold in a thrilling finish that we've just we've never seen anything like that before that enough to me was like holy cow give this guy the award you know that's you know that was pulling a rabbit out of a hat then he switches to mountain biking and he goes up against mountain biking's most dominant man ever in cross-country mountain biking. Uh, Nino Schurter has won more World Cups and more World Championships than anyone in history. And Vanderpool was always kind of a few watts behind him in 2018. You know, he was consistently on the podium, but he wasn't beating Nino in the big cross-country races. And then, boom, all of a sudden, he has Nino Schurter's number and beats him three times, three World Cup wins. I mean... Winning a mountain bike World Cup, I you know we talk a lot about road in Velo News and on the Velo News podcast. I can't get into describing how amazingly difficult it is to win just one mountain bike World Cup. I mean, it's a career defining achievement to do something like that, and Vanderpolt does it three times against the sport's most dominant rider. Then comes back onto the road, um, completely blows people away at this Tour of Britain, and then. You know, the knock you could make against him is that all of the pressure and anticipation is around him for Worlds and, and he wilts. And so that's why, look, pe- if people have arguments against Vanderpool, nah, he's, you know, I get it. He didn't win the Worlds. If he would have won the Worlds, it's, it's hands down. But I still think, I don't know, I think in aggregate what he did across three different disciplines is, is completely insane.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with you entirely, Fred and your rationale. rationale. you know, looking at it in hindsight, because I was a, I was a real big booster on the Vanderpool voting when when we went through this internally as well. I thought of Vanderpool. And I even said it earlier in the podcast. But now you know, looking at it, I've been thinking about this as well. You know, the one guy who didn't have a glitch on the season is Bernal. Yeah. And you know, we didn't even actually have him on our list of candidates. But Bernal, you know, just like Primo's Roglic and these other guys, you know, he won. Uh, all of his spring races. I think he didn't win Catalonia, but he won in Paris-Nice. He won the Tour de Suisse. Then it goes the Tour de France, makes history as the first Colombian, first Latin American to win the Tour. I mean, huge. Nairo couldn't do it. The Escaravajos couldn't do it in the 80s. You know, so he made history. And then, you know, he came back and he was very competitive uh, in the Italian Fall Classics. I think he got a win and was right there uh, on the podium at uh, Gio della Lombardia. So when you look at it, just, you know, within the men's run racing, you know, there's a pretty strong case that Bernal should have won. Yeah. Is it too late to change? Can we, can we go back to
0: the presses? No, yeah. no, <laughs> too, too late to stop the presses. Yeah. <laughs> stop the presses. Go back in time with the presses. No, you make a great point for, for Bernal. I mean, I guess maybe the one knock against him. I mean, well, it's not a knock. It's Talk about, you know, making lemonades out of lemon. He's supposed to go to the Giro and win the thing and he breaks his collarbone and oh, has to go to the Tour de France and boom, look what he does there. Uh, Youngest post-war tour winner ever. So, yeah, Bernal belongs on that list right there as well. Something I kept thinking about with Vanderpool was that, you know, that level of versatility – we just don't see all the time. In fact, the last time we saw that level of versatility was 2015 with P- uh, Pauline Ferran Prevo when she won the world championships in cyclocross and in the road and in mountain biking. And, you know, I went back and looked at that season and she did – look, she won worlds in all three. She, w- she wasn't as dominant as Vanderpool was. And, and we, na- we gave her the cyclist of the year that year because of the cross-discipline victories. And so I think it's fair then to give it to Vanderpool because – you know, she did it. He was able to do it. It's completely insane. Um, I hadn't seen anything like that in in men's road racing, mountain biking, or cross before. So that's why, in my mind, just the it was really those mountain bike win, World Cup wins that that edged him. Are, that's winning those mountain bike World Cups is people under those are hard it. to win. That's really hard to win.
1: And you know what, Fred, you're the boss. You know. You're the guy that gets to make the final call. So sometimes you know, be, being, the, being the top name on the, uh, on the uh, list has its benefits there. So it, it's your call. But I agree with you because I mean, I, I mean, I'm, I'm a former mountain biker too. You know, we both used to cover these races. And winning a mountain bike race is hard. And you put it perfect in perspective about winning against uh, the very best. And for him to do that across three disciplines. You know, had he won that world, I mean, it was all set up for him to win, right? He made the right move, bridged out to that group, and suddenly just got the bonk. And uh, that, forever, you know, that was his chance to win the worlds. And I think, you know, nine out of ten times, had he been in that group, he would have won. But he wasn't there. He wasn't there. We got Mads. Mad Mads is the uh, world champion going into 2020.
0: Chapeau to you, Matthew Vanderpoel. You get a nice article in a print magazine that you can cut out and put on your. Refrigerator for everyone to see. So, Andy, this awards issue we put together, we didn't just uh, talk about the biggest storylines that happened in 2019. Since it is the final issue of the decade, we also looked back at some of the big stories that influenced pro cycling over the last 10 years. So, you wrote a piece about the growth, the dominance of Team Sky and Team Ineos. I wrote about the downfall of Lance Armstrong. With his admission to lots of PED use on Oprah, and the impact that had on American cycling, driving sponsors away, driving eyeballs away, doing a lot of bad stuff there. Um, I wrote about how gravel cycling went from a real weird oddity to being mainstream, and that had, that just has happened in the last couple years. Um, you had an excellent piece on the rise of Colombia as a cycling nation. Um, I, which, you know, it's Columbia's always been there, but this was the decade in which I felt like they really broke through. They had a piece on the electric revolution in cycling technology with all of the electric shifters, uh, the era of Sagan, and a piece on women's racing, which I'll talk about later. Hoodie, you were going to talk to us, though, about this Ineos Sky piece where you looked at the last 10 years And how, I mean, it's amazing. You go back to 2010, and that's sort of when the whole thing got started. And you talked about how the team, perhaps more than any other entity out there, really shaped pro cycling over the last 10 years. Yeah, I think
1: of of any team that Left its mark in the last decade. I think you could argue that uh, quite handily that Sky Enios stands above the crowd in terms of uh, not only what they've done on the bike, you know, I mean, just the t- statistics are, are remarkable. You know, they've won eight out of the last nine tours. Uh, you know, who was who was the one guy who hasn't been Sky to have won the tour since uh, 2012? That I'm asking be you, Fred, right?
0: Cadell Evans?
1: <laughs> well, he won before. No, it was, it was Nibali. Nibali is the one guy. Oh, right. no, yeah, pretty, yeah. pretty remarkable that Nibali uh, is the guy who who is uh, the only rider not to
0: have been Sky to have won since 2012 on the Tour. So not to only did he win 8 defense, of 9. I, I got an email when you asked that question. I was slightly distracted. Of course, Nibali, 2014. Oh. TJ. Yeah, that of was course. a great year.
1: <laughs> yeah, great year. Um, and then um, – but what's remarkable for me is not only the fact that they won eight out of nine, because we've seen some of these uh, you know teams can win, pop out so many victories. You know we have you know Lance who won seven, who were later taken away seven. That's one guy. Same with Indoran, who won you know five in a row. That's one guy. But Team Sky has managed to win with four different riders during that nine-year kind of uh, leg. You know the, you know they are the team that is just completely dominating stage racing. Now love them or hate them, there's a lot of people out there that do not like. Team Sky, for reasons we won't get into right now, but um, they have been at the cutting edge, really, of innovation. Not only how they how they approach the race, but how they train and prepare for the race. And I think they've kind of taken that Formula One approach to bike racing. It's been an evolution. I mean, they're not the first team to do this kind of stuff, but they just had the, the they had the combination of having the budget. Having the bringing in some new science and nutrition and technology into the sport, and being able to really dominate in a way that we've never really seen in the history of cycling—to have one team win so many grand tours with so many different riders—you know, Lavie Claire back in the day, some of Renault, some of these other teams have had multiple winners winning across, but no one has won as many times as deep as Team Sky.
0: Yeah. And like you said, look, love them or hate them, I think it's undeniable that this is a huge story over the last decade. Because if you look at the way other teams now race, it's all... If you look at the way, first of all, other teams now race, the way that grand tours are mapped and plotted and the routes are laid out, these are all reactions to Team Sky. Like the the way that they started to race and the way that they started to sort of suck the life out of these big attacks and control the races had such a huge impact on television ratings, sponsorship, the course design, the way other teams would race, the way other teams would select riders and recruit riders to come on. It all kind of comes back to Team Sky and Brailsford. And, you know. <laughs> We've had so many conversations on this podcast about, how oh, OK, some of the Tour de France tactics are boring or they suck the life out of the race, et cetera, et cetera. They're also successful. But again, I mean, at the end of the day, when that is driving so much of the greater ecosystem around pro cycling, that's what makes these guys influential.
1: Yeah, it's interesting how you pointed out how the course design is, uh, has changed when under Team Sky because you're exactly right. I mean, there's so many things that ASO and the Tour de France have done. To kind of prevent uh, Sky from winning, and they still manage to adapt and evolve and change the way they do things to adapt to the course that's presented to them. That's what makes, of course, the Tour de France so dynamic. Is every year it's a different course. But you've seen, you know, ASO introduce things, hoping that a- hoping that Froome and Team Sky wouldn't win, and they win anyway. So that just as a reflection of just how good they really are.
0: Um, the you know the um, the discussion around a. Uh, salary cap in cycling i had n- i had kind of heard people talk about that fifteen years ago, sixteen years ago uh in you know casually in mention, and that has now become like mainstream cycling fan conversation fodder if you're talking to someone about the Tour de france everyone's like oh we need a we need a you know salary cap we need to even this out we need to you know put resources in other people's hands or have a more evenly you know even distribution of resources almost like you find with like the NBA or something like that. And I don't feel like I feel like that type of conversation and that thinking is directly born out of Sky's dominance at the tour. So chapeau to you, Team Sky and Team Idios. You gave us all sorts of new topics to talk about. <laughs> For a whole decade. And it's and, and
1: and with half the team now, Team Sky's half the team is under twenty twenty two, I think. They can't even buy a beer in Colorado.
0: But <laughs> They're all lined up to race at Team Sky. They're, they're going to be good for 10 more years. Yeah. yeah. So, chapeau to you, Team Sky. I think the dominance is going to stay there. So, the story that I want to talk about um, was one that I dug into in looking at the last decade, and that was um, the storyline around <laughs> women's professional road racing. And the fact that I feel like in 2019, if you are a hardcore fan of women's professional road racing, you are also what I would say and what I would call an advocate for the sport. If, especially if you're a North American fan of women's road racing, you are an advocate for the growth and the betterment of that sport. And I don't think that was the case a decade or 15 years ago when I was writing about women's racing in sort of the early 2000s. People followed it. People knew about Kristen Armstrong. People liked following the races and, um, you know, Following the action and who won this, that, and the other. But there wasn't the sort of intense advocacy for equality and for the betterment of the sport that you find with – Basically, all cycling fans who follow women's cycling, and I think this is a, this is a tremendous good thing. I I think it's born out of challenging and bad situations, which is that you know we have seen money and interest leave women's cycling. We've seen some of the big stage races that they had 15 years ago go away, and now it's, you know the uh, the Giro Rosa is the biggest race. There's no more Tour de Lode, Women's Tour de France. Some of these big marquee races from 15 years ago are, are gone, um, and we've also seen the sport really try. To tackle some of the issues in inequality, um, with you know disparity, disparity in pay, disparity in racing days, disparity in racing opportunities, um, that have been problems of the sport forever. Um, what I pegged this story to, though, was um, the 2013 film that came out that was done by a racer who um, a lot of people know from social media and following her online, Catherine Bertine, and she made this film called Half the Road. And the film was all about showing the life of professional women's road racers and the impact that it had on the sport. Because as she's filming this thing, she's talking with Marianne Voss and Emma Pooley and all these big ra- road racers and asking them the question, would you race a, a, tour, a women's tour to France if there was a women's tour to France? And, of course, all of us are saying, yes, sure, we'd love that. We'd love to have that type of um, of race. And I spoke to Catherine about this for the piece, sort of going back in time and remembering what it was like having those conversations. And Catherine is the, is, is the type of person who would – she hears stuff like that is like, okay, well, let's do something about it. And she um, started this movement and there was a petition and there was – organized uh, websites and an organized movement on social media to get people involved and engaged to sign this petition to, to deliver to ASO to say, hey, we need you guys need to have some type of women's race. We need a women's tour de France. And it debuted in 2014. That, of course, was La Course. It's been a one-day race. It's been a two-day race. It hasn't grown to the level of um, the women's stage race that I think they were all hoping for. But I think that the impact that Catherine and her film, and the movement started by that, what what the impact that it has had is to really engage fans of women cycling around the fact that like this sport is has to be a movement. There has to be advocacy around it, and I give her a lot of credit for that, and I give fans of the sport a lot of credit for that too. Um, you know, you don't really find that in men's cycling. You know, fans who are like pushing for, you know, well, we need safer roads, or we need Um, you know, I guess the, the outer line guys are kind of like that, where they're like, we need to, you know, revamp the sport and, you know, have a Rafa roadmap for the pathway for greater revenues or whatever. But with women's cycling, a lot of the fans that you talk to, especially North America are like, I'm a, you know, I, I want this sport to be better. I want equal pay. I want more race days. I, you know, this sport deserves more.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. We've seen that across other sports too, of course, with women's soccer at the Women's World Cup recently. That was obviously a big talking point. And It's, it's interesting how a public pressure can have a huge impact on these kinds of things because, as you pointed out, the, the groundswell support for something like this around the Tour, you know, now the Tour de France is openly talking about having and creating a women's stage race under their umbrella of properties, which is an important step. And Of course, The big thing for them, of course, is the money. They're they're out to make the money. And, uh, you know, logistically, uh, having a tour, a women's tour to France before. The men's Tour de France on the same day, the same roads, logically, some people might think that would be an easy thing to do. But logistically, it's quite complicated and and it's just not going to work out the way I think that maybe some people hope for. But by putting pressure on these public institutions, especially in Europe, it's more, I think, of an American thing or the Anglo world. But, man, if the same pressure came to bear on the public institutions in Europe, I mean, the Tour de France... You know, very large part of its public, of a large part of its budget and support comes from the public sector. All these little towns, all these little, all the villages, all the communities, and the and the regions that pump public money into the Tour de France. You know, if they could go to that, would be the place where you could put really put pressure on the local politicians and make that a big issue. That's how they could perhaps even. Pr- from a more change, especially
0: at the Tour de France level. Yep, no, I'm agreeing with you. Well, the issue is our annual awards issue, Velu's awards issue. Has a great photo of Chloe Daggert on the cover. Says American Flyer, and it has all of our info from the awards to great photos for the year, stories of the decade, um, even a little fun at the back column by yours truly about what it's like to be a dad. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it's riveting reading. Yeah, there's a great little illustration there too of trying to like watch bike racing with an infant sort of spitting up and doing infant things on your lap. Um, it's it's been an adventure. All right, congratulations, Fred. <laughs> well, thank you, Andy Hood. I'm glad we uh, survived another episode of the Villainies podcast. We will be continuing to come to you throughout the month of December. Um, actually, next week we will you will be off. You will be on vacation. Um, doing a well-deserved vacation, but we'll have some more interviews for you all um, as we head towards the holiday season. So for Andrew Hood, it's Fred Dreyer. Thanks for tuning into the Villain News Podcast. We will come to you next week.